Pop Health Podcast is a public service of 24-Hour Home Care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. This is Gavin Ward, host of Pop Health Podcast. In today's episode, I sat down with Karen Nelson. Karen served as the Executive Director over Care Coordination, Social Work, Spiritual Care, and Aging Adult Services for Stanford Healthcare in Palo Alto and the surrounding area. Karen's also on the board for the Society of Social Work Leadership and Healthcare, and now Karen's actually in Canada, where she's spending some time with family and looking at the next stages in her career. In today's episode, Karen talked a little bit about the differences between Canadian healthcare and American healthcare and social work, and also how Stanford responded during the COVID-19 crisis and how she positioned some of her team in surgery to shift them over and support COVID-19 patients. We hope you enjoyed today's episode where you learn more about Karen and Stanford Healthcare. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to check out other episodes on popbillpodcast.com, Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and of course now YouTube as well. Thanks everyone. Enjoy the show. So Karen, uh, tell me something about you that might surprise our uh, audience of healthcare professionals, maybe something outside of the workplace. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to tell you that I have sung on stage at Carnegie Hall. Wow. Tell us more. What, I mean, what's your style or or what was that all about? Well, I will tell you that I was not alone. I was part of a large group, a choir. I am a church member and I sing faithfully in the choir at my church here in Palo Alto. And we had an opportunity to go to New York and sing as a larger group. And for a Canadian, the thought that they were going to be even in Carnegie Hall is super exciting and, uh, and, and just uh, such a fun thing to do. Singing is very uh, therapeutic. Um, it releases stress. It gives you community with other people. Um, and so for me, it's a way that I have been more resilient Um, Yeah, and this was definitely a high moment. My family was able to come. I have a son and daughter-in-law that live in Brooklyn and uh, a daughter who was going to Columbia. So uh, going to New York and having this big experience was was definitely a highlight. That is awesome. Uh, Both my parents uh, sung in the choir, not at that level though. Uh, When you were, when you moved here, and we'll get into a little bit of your story here in a moment, but was a choir a requirement for you when you were seeking out a church or Tell us about that. I'm the uh, daughter of the organist and choir director at the large uh, Lutheran church I went to growing up. She was the organist and choir director for 52 consecutive years. And so we never had a Sunday that we weren't all in the choir somehow. And then, you know, when you have your family and your career, you you don't have always the chance to uh, take part in these things. But when I came here, I was looking for a uh, church that had music as a feature. And I have never uh, been in a choir with so many people who were, they seem to all be professionally trained somewhere, oh. somehow, which I wasn't. So again, <laughs> for me, this was a challenge. Can I keep up? Can we sing in other languages? Can we sing different parts than we're used to? Can we handle all these kind of impromptu things? So again, it was a challenge, but it was also something that was relaxing. That's great. Well, uh, thank you for walking us through that, Karen, and definitely something I wasn't aware of, and um, that's great that you shared that story. So uh, for those of you that are listening today um, and who have been Pop Health Podcast subscribers or listeners, 
since the beginning, back in 2015, Karen actually did a, a very small segment on um, a conference show that we did for the Society. Let me get, make sure I get this right. The Society for Social Work Leadership and Healthcare. So technically, Karen is a returning guest, but this is our first time having her as the featured guest. And uh, Karen, before we get into your work here at Stanford, walk us through maybe where you grew up and how you ended up falling into healthcare. Well, I grew up in Canada in a really small town and I was first in my family to go to university. And uh, I was interested in uh, social work because uh, my family was kind of informal social workers. My mom was a teacher and uh, we were always helping somebody or she was always helping the kids in the class that had the most difficulty. Um, I never heard her really talk about the rigors of teaching. It was more about uh, some uh, child. And so we were really aware of that. Um, and I also wanted to pick courses that I thought I would enjoy. I thought about business and uh, I thought, hmm, that's a lot of math. And uh, the psychology and social work courses sounded like, well, this would just be interesting all the time. So. Um, I went to a small university where I could get a scholarship because again, I was the first in my family to go. My family did not have a lot of means and um, being able to uh, get a scholarship was more likely in a small university, yeah. which had a master's program in social work. So I kind of honed in on it uh, that way. Later, uh, while I was working at the hospital in Ottawa, they sent every year a, one physician and one administrator to do an MBA. And so I ended up doing the business degree later in my career. But uh, so I kind of got to achieve uh, both aims and uh, the combination has been uh, really effective for me. Nice, that's great. So I know in your backgrounds, Karen, you've done a variety of, of work with different organizations, including serving youth and serving older adults. So uh, that is, the, you, you know a lot, I would say. Um, during that time in Canada where you serve those different populations versus your time at Stanford, what would you say is maybe different about the Canadian healthcare system that stands out to you versus the United States? Uh, the two systems do many similar things, but the driver for doing them is a little different. Um, in Canada, you're always looking to conserve resources because you want enough for the next person. And it's kind of a shared mental model that you only use as many resources as you need um, because somebody else may need them later, but that everybody should have access all the time. So you look for efficiencies um, constantly because the more efficient you are, the faster you discharge a patient, the more likely someone who comes to the ED who could be your neighbor and you kind of think of it in that way okay I'm gonna get myself out of hospital fast because my neighbor might come tomorrow and need that bed um, in America there's um, a lot of uh, competition and rigor around discharge and how you can discharge patients faster and more efficiently because there's revenue attached to that so you you do similar things but you do them for different reasons uh, one of the other very significant differences is that you have no payer source in Canada. Um, 
everything is free to everyone across the continuum. And people think, what a disaster that would be because people would just hang on to their beds and refuse to leave or go to the doctor every day because there is no bill. But again, as I say, it's a cultural thing and if people have grown up in it, they understand it's their taxes that is paying for this and so they are more judicious in using it, knowing it will be there when they need it. I think also that uh, many improvements come about because of the desire to do something um, cheaper or that's uh, more effective um, in Canada and it's that driver of make the resource go further. Um, and in America, it is to be on the leading edge of care, to differentiate yeah. yourself. People will wanna come to us because we have this new um, way of doing things. So um, that's a little different too. One of the things that was hard for me to get used to, and I was reminded of it today in the post-COVID environment, of course we know that during COVID, hospitals were uh, underutilized if you didn't have a high census of COVID positive patients like in New York. So many hospitals prepared had empty beds and staff and didn't have people coming. And now, of course, we're trying to get people back into care and right. catch up on surgeries, get the people medical care. So we're trying to get people into the beds. In Canada, your best day is when people don't come. Yeah. Because then you have the forces that you saved. So you're hoping, oh, I hope not many people come today. That'll be a good day because that means more resources for tomorrow. Whereas here, you need to maintain uh, your occupancy in order to be viable financially. And another thing that is very different as a social worker is that uh, there is no paperwork or um, authorization process in Canada to get a patient to rehab, to get a patient to SNF, to get a patient home care. The only thing you need are the demographics and the, the medical need that the patient has. And you simply send it off and you know they will be accepted. And so uh, in the healthcare system in America, uh, you have the authorizations and the vetting and the insurance provider and the in-network or out-of-network and then the entitlements, which change. That was another thing for me that they change uh, depending on what policy you have and who's in network with those different services. So you don't spend any time thinking about that aspect. It's just where, where should this patient go? And of course, they'll be able to go there. Interesting. I, I didn't go, this is, you've had experience in both and I didn't go into the show when I, when I was going to ask this question, I, when I had prepared, I didn't realize the perspective that makes, it makes a lot of sense. And um, so I know professionally, you probably had a lot to adapt to when you came here. What, what attracted you uh, to Stanford in the first place? I didn't seek Stanford. Stanford found me. Um, networking is so important and meeting people uh, that can broaden your perspective and give you new ideas is really important. And so while I was working in Canada, of course, the population is less than the population of the state of California. So not a lot of people, right? Yeah. And uh, in order to uh, broaden the number of thought partners and uh, people doing the same kind of leadership in social work and healthcare. I uh, joined um, the Society for Social Work Leadership in Healthcare and participated on as a board member 
and attended conferences and spoke. And through that organization, I had learned that uh, Stanford was looking for someone to lead their Department of Social Work and Case Management. And in a usual social work fashion, I heard about this and started to think, who do I know that I should tell about this who may be interested? And then I went home and I thought, well, why not? Why should I not be interested? Why would this not be uh, interesting? And uh, I'm attracted to um, academic centers, uh, which Stanford is. And I was also attracted to the uh, challenge of working in another country. I have worked in Australia, and which has a dual track system, private and public, and then also at various places across Canada. And I thought this would be so interesting. And um, you can't really appreciate and understand all the nuances of a system unless you participate in it. Um, it did help that California has very nice weather yeah. And I knew one person in the state of California through my sister. And it happened that that one person lived in Palo Alto, which is where Stanford is located, and had gone to Stanford University. So, you know, the, the universe unfolds in its own way. And yeah. we have to be open to the opportunities, which may come at a time that's right, but not maybe not at a time that's perfect. Um, and be willing to kind of say, I, I'm willing to put myself out there and try this. Wow. So you came in, uh, I think it was 2015. Did I get that right? Mm -hmm. 2015. You knew one person. Did you have family with you? Did you come solo? I had three children who were, um, one had just, well, that's the other thing that inspired me. When my eldest graduated with his PhD, he was offered a job in Toronto, which all Canadians would think is the prime place to be. And he said, nothing doing. The bigger office for this company is in New York, and I'm going to get myself a job in New York, which he did, moved to New York, made it look like a piece of cake. And so I thought, you know, if this kid can do this, like, surely I can manage it. Uh, with the experience I have moving. So then my other, I had a son that was working in Western Canada, my daughter's still in school, and my husband working uh, um, as well in Canada. Um, so yeah, I came all by myself. And then um, wow. over time, um, my uh, children don't get to visit that often, but my husband spends time here. Okay, good. Wow, what an adventure. So mm -hmm. you came over, and we know some of the, chain, the challenges in the healthcare system. What about personally outside of the workplace? What was different? Was there anything different about the culture, um, again, outside of the workplace for you? Uh, one of the things that I remember is standing at the uh, Caltrain and someone turning to me, and I forget what we were talking about, and they said, well, what you're seeing is the velocity of money. Hmm. And by that, they meant money going back and forth and swirling around and changing hands. And it spoke to being in Silicon Valley. And we're right near Sand Hill Road, where the venture capitalists are. And uh, compared to the economy in Canada, like it's hugely different. The, um, also, the job opportunities 
are that much greater at a higher level because there's so many more people, so many more companies, so many more executives. So it, it's just a much um, broader spectrum of people. Um, I also thought that um, there is a level of uh, confidence and willingness to risk and uh, adventurousness um, that, uh, and this is a huge generalization, but in comparison, uh, Canadians are a little bit more risk adverse and a little bit more cautious. And so the, um, the confidence and the, uh, the, the willingness to risk and the uh, ambitiousness and the innovation um, was just very, very exciting and different, uh, a, a different pace. Of course, Palo Alto is not all of America by any means, and so you get a different um, taste of America and of California, really, uh, being in the Bay Area. Yeah, I bet. Um, culturally, how about one good restaurant for folks who might be visiting Stanford or the Palo Alto area? What's one restaurant that you enjoy out there? You're asking a difficult question because after four months of not being able to go to a restaurant, uh, okay. things are a little foggy for me. Um, but uh, I'll tell you where I like to go for drinks and that's the Rosewood on Sand Hill. Um, beautiful hotel, beautiful deck, beautiful setting. Any place you can eat outside in California you don't even realize whether the meal was top-notch or not. You're just so happy to be sitting outside and, and enjoying uh, whatever's going on. Yeah, well said, especially someone who's lived up in the cold winters of Canada. So, right, dining outside is definitely high on my list. Nice. All year round. Dining outside all year round. I will say, best coffee is Phil's, P-H-I-L-Z. Phil's coffee, you don't want to miss Phil's if you're in the Bay Area. Yeah, one of my colleagues uh, used to manage a Phil's uh, store and uh, we've heard great things. So you mentioned you haven't uh, you know, been to a restaurant in four months, uh, COVID-19. We're recording this episode on early summer. It'll probably be released late summer. What um, has been, maybe just briefly, how has Stanford responded to COVID-19? For example, you mentioned you know, you had to prepare for this rush and then you want patients. Maybe, maybe just give a brief overview on your COVID-19 experience. Mm -hmm. So we early on uh, were advised that COVID was thought to be north of us in Washington state. But tr uh, in truth, we had cases here earlier that we didn't actually find out were COVID cases till later. Um, we got the uh, real sense that something was happening when Dr. Sarah Cody, who was the medical officer of health for Santa Clara County, advised everyone to shelter in place. And she was very early to do that and had great sensitivity to how serious this was going to be. And we began to open up space here. One of the great things about uh, the timing of this was we just opened our beautiful, big, new hospital in November. And it was to take us from 450 rooms to 600 and, and have us close certain parts of the old hospital and revamp them and revitalize them and change all the rooms to single rooms. So we are still operating two sites that are, are joint. Um, and so when uh, COVID 
it looked like it, it might uh, create huge demand for care, specifically in the ICU. We had all this space that we could uh, repurpose and set up and give us uh, an ability to expand and accommodate more patients. So that was, that was one of the first things that we did get all of this space ready. Um, we didn't increase our social work and case management staffing with travelers or anything like that because everyone in the country was looking for people at the same time. Um, but what we did was we set up a COVID resource team. We took two, uh, we stopped our, our elective surgery. And so we took two of our case managers from um, surgery, one social worker and a support liaison. And we set up a team that just did all the care coordination and became the front people for COVID. Calling the counties, looking at all the resources, being in touch with the SNFs, looking at what the latest directives were from CDPH, et cetera. Um, and that was hugely helpful to us because having all of your case managers or social workers every day trying to call everywhere and figure out how to get resources and also for the counties and other facilities, for them to receive this many calls from all of us trying to find out this information just ties up the whole system. So this was a very efficient uh, way of disseminating the information, making sure we had the most recent information and we learned uh, a lot about how to respond in a uh, pandemic that way. We also at a certain point and I had a lot of conversations with my counterparts up and down the coast as well. Um, we determined that we should let some people work at home, yeah. work from home, which was really, really hard for myself and some other people to think about because we have a whole history of our care being delivered face to face, being in the room with the patient, talking to the family directly. We use the phone, but more for resource people uh, not for our patients primarily. And so the idea that we could be as effective or as, a, as efficient with uh, video chats or FaceTime uh, was kind of a leap. And yeah. the, the great thing about this was we discovered that for a certain segment of the population, this actually worked better because all these people were sheltered at home. They actually had time to talk to us, right? And otherwise, they would have been at work, picking up kids, exhausted at night. We're trying to call them. It's annoying because they're in the middle of things. But they were at home, and they could pick up the phone and actually talk to us more. Um, so that was especially true for family members. I think for some uh, patients, they felt that it was great to be able to see their physician or talk to their social worker or case manager and not have to drive in traffic, park, the uh, combined amount of time it takes to do that versus go online and talk to your social worker or your physician. It wasn't so good for um, older patients who mightn't have been as comfortable with the technology. Yeah. But it meant, it, it may, meant we could keep our staff safe because they weren't going into patient rooms. They weren't going home having been in the hospital and taking things home if they had family members that they were concerned about. And so we rotated staff and they'd be on site and then they'd be home and they'd be on site and home. And that, um, that uh, reduced the number of people who had to call out sick or didn't have childcare or whatever. So we had our full um, workforce available to us every day. And it's just brought about new thinking about how care is delivered. 
Yeah, no, that's that's great. And uh, I had heard stories about case managers working from home, which I've never, never I, 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 I would have said no if someone <laughs> would have told me about it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've heard this throughout my, you know, 15 years or so in healthcare that, you know, case without case management, the hospital doesn't run. And I've heard on occasion, like, case managers are key to success at a hospital. So what would you say, and the social work as well, what do case managers and social workers, and you manage a team of what, is it 200? Did I read that right? Mm-hmm. But I have chaplains. I also have chaplains and, chaplain. and uh, aging adults. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, what would you say your team often does not get recognized for that they should? Mm-hmm. A lot of time is spent on uh, what you might refer to as service recovery. Uh, people who are happy about something. And sometimes it's that they didn't understand. Sometimes they just need to vent. Uh, sometimes we have done something that's not quite right. Sometimes they just need the doctor to come in and talk to them. So all the kind of behind the scenes thing that you don't put in the chart or that you aren't able to record as an actual intervention is an intervention because it helps to make the hospital run smoothly but it also helps for the patient to have confidence in the team and to um, have the kind of experience we want them to have while they're here so there's a lot of uh, service recovery and non um, non things that are non-specific anybody could do these things but they they tend to sometimes fall into the purview of case management and social work. And it doesn't, we don't need to be recognized for them, but we seem to do them. Um, one of the uh, uh, social workers was telling me last night that her team will call her if there's a, a legal problem. And she said, I'm not sure which courses they think we took in law <laughs> as part of our MSW, but the team seems to think if someone's having legal problems, it would be a good idea to get us involved. So there's also a lot of the kind of outside the box um, requests that you get uh, that that you just do your best to handle. And it's probably not something that is belongs to under your license or your skill set, but it's just a practical thing that you can do to help a patient. And so you do it. Yeah, that's great. And uh... I encourage all listening. Um, if you don't have to get involved in someone's legal uh, piece, you might want to <laughs> might want to step aside. <laughs> Maybe point them in the right direction. Um, okay, cool. So you've been at Stanford five years. Um, you're leaving soon, and we'll touch on that here in just a second. But what's the patient success story that you or your team have been involved with that really stood out to you, and one you can share with the audience? Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to merge several. Uh, stories into one um, just to protect everybody's confidentiality. Sure. Uh, One of the things that has made us successful, especially around long length of stay patients and those we define as those who stay more than 30 days, lots of places might look at it as even a shorter amount of time, but we segment the patients who are here more than 30 days and work more intensively with them. And frequently we know that they are patients who come, who come often and then stay a long time because they are often lacking in, in social capital. They're lacking in the resources. We're a very affirming 
comfortable, safe place for them to be. And so when we ask them to discharge, it's often into a less satisfactory place than being in the hospital. Yeah. People think that, oh, no one wants to stay in the hospital more than uh, they have to. Everybody's just waiting to get out out and anxious to see their case manager and the reality when you're here is that there is a segment like I said where this is a safe place a secure place a place where they can feel they can trust the care they're getting as opposed to some of their experiences outside hospital so what we have learned is that for many of these patients who sometimes have behavior that's very challenging they often come in and because of the rotating nature of teaching teaching hospitals you only have to be on service for a period of time. And then someone else takes over. And so with patients that are reluctant to discharge or pose a lot of behavioral problems to discharge or throw a lot of obstacles in the way, um, some of the team members would like to just kind of wait it out and let the next person deal with it. And when I got here, I realized there were uh, uh, quite a few patients um, that would come up where everybody thought somebody else was doing something for this patient. And uh, in one particular situation, it was a patient who was uh, bariatric and had been here a very long period of time. And when I was asking people, well, how is this patient gonna discharge? Like, what is the goal? What are we waiting for? Um, people told me that they were gonna discharge when their weight had been reduced to a certain point. Okay. Which sounds, reasonable. And so then nothing seemed to be happening. And so then I saw the clinical nutrition person and I said, so what are you, what strategies are you using to get this patient to this weight? Because as soon as you do, like we are really going to move to help this patient discharge. And she said, they're never going to get down to that weight. They don't follow anything we say at all. They call down and order food. The nurses let them get food because they're easier to manage if they can kind of uh, reward them with a certain kind of food. And after we all go home at night, the patient's mom comes in and brings them lasagna or things that they really like. So yeah. there is no way we're gonna get that patient's weight down. And it dawned on me that we weren't coordinating our efforts. We were all working really hard, but we were siloed. So what we started to do was, and this is so elementary, I'm almost embarrassed to talk about it, but we started doing um, case conferences on these patients that we identified uh, came frequently, were reluctant to leave, um, there were behavioral barriers to them going to certain places. And what we found is when we pulled in the uh, providers from the community who often didn't know that this was going on with the patient going back and forth, um, we pulled in the, some members of the treatment team here, we pulled in uh, sometimes uh, family members, um, but we got everybody around the table to get a plan together. And between the physician, the person from rehab, the person from nutrition, the social worker, the case manager, um, whomever had the therapist in the community, whoever, when we all sat down, often the manager on the unit was not even knowing what all the interventions were, um, and got a consistent plan, we were able to facilitate uh, discharges more effectively but also though we were able to prevent readmissions because we'd really thought out the plan and the transfer to the community. So we've had a number of successes with those cases and uh, not all of them are uh, perfect, 
but it's a very basic strategy if you take the time and energy to actually bring people together. That's great, Karen. Well, thanks for sharing uh, that story, uh, or I guess a combination of stories there. So um, before we get to where you're off to next and before we wrap up the show, um, a lot of our listeners, um, so our listeners are mostly healthcare professionals, case managers, physicians, healthcare marketers as well. And I want to touch on that. Um, in my day job, you know, I have a marketing component to my, my job and a lot of the listeners, you know, maybe Northern California folks and they have great services. How does someone get your attention as a post-acute provider? Um, again, you're leaving Stanford later this week. So folks, if you're listening, you can't get a hold of Karen so she can reveal any secrets and I won't get her in trouble. But what would, what would you advise post-acute providers if they want to work with you, your team at Stanford? The best way to gain a reputation is to take on a difficult case and do a good job with it. Um, there's lots of companies in these spaces and they all have the brochures and they all can tell you they do this. Um, many times they will take, many companies will take the easier cases yeah. and there's lots of companies that, that to do that. But the people that can take a difficult case and actually figure out how to work with that patient, that's really what we're looking for. And that differentiates them. The, the, the company that you call and say, I've got this less than perfect situation and this is what I need. And they'll say, well, we could do this or this because um, it's all about the outlier. It's all about the outlier and how you uh, address that patient whose unique needs make them an outlier. And those are really the pain points for hospitals and for case managers. It's not the standard work and the patient who comes in and they know where they want to go and they know who they want to use and they, you know, they're well insured, whatever. It's the patient who doesn't fit readily in that box. So, so in general, our, our best partners are people who will take a really tough case and, and make a difference, stick with it, communicate well with us, those kinds of things. I think that's great. And uh, that makes perfect sense. So folks, I hope you heard that. Not just the easy ones. Uh, I'm not gonna, I was going to give some examples, but I don't want to call anybody out <laughs> um, or any industry out. Um, so I talked to Karen before we started recording, but Karen, can you briefly share with the audience what is drawing you away from Stanford? Uh, Friday, so we're recording on a Wednesday. Friday's her last day. Uh, Karen, share about, about your next journey. Huh. So uh, I am just heading back to Canada. I won't say just, it's going to be a big effort to get there, especially with the border closed, but I am going to do my best. Um, I, I, that my family is in Canada. I came here not thinking I would stay for the rest of my life, but can't come for this experience, which has just been tremendous. Lots of learning, uh, lots of excitement. I'm looking for something that is a little slower pace. And, uh, and just to do some, some different things with my time. So, uh, yeah, so I'm going to go back to Canada, spend more time with family. And uh, I do have, uh, I'm not using the word retirement yet, but that is uh, crossing my mind and definitely a different phase of, of life. Great, Karen. Well, best wishes in Canada. It's been nice knowing you uh, and interacting with you periodically over the last five years. 
Um, Karen Nelson has been our guest, folks. And it's really been a joy for you to share your story. Um, and we'll see what happens next with Karen. And um, really appreciate you again being on the show. I'm going to be in touch with Karen and uh, maybe update the audience if she stays in the healthcare world up in Canada. I'll update you guys. Karen, any final words for our audience today? Oh, well, thank you for giving me this chance to talk about my experience here, especially as a Canadian uh, in, in America. Uh, it's, it, I, I will say that uh, people have been so kind, so welcoming, so thoughtful, so interested and curious about someone who's had a, a different background or experience. And so um, I have made many friends, some great colleagues, and I do hope many of you will make a trip to Canada. Uh, it's, it is part of North America. <laughs> you can get there if you have a passport. And uh, we definitely will be looking to stimulate our economy too once people are able to get out and travel. So uh, yeah, and I just wish everyone well and thank those that I have known and worked with uh, for the opportunity to be one of their colleagues. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.